Welcome to I Dare You, a series through the book of Daniel with Skip Heitzig. Once upon a time, there lived a man who thought he was dead. And that really disturbed his wife and his friends. They thought he needed to see a psychiatrist, so they took him to the doctor, and the doctor decided that he would convince the man that he was not dead by one basic fact, and that fact is that dead men do not bleed. Over the next several months, he gave his patient medical books, even invited him to see an autopsy. And after several months, the patient finally conceded and said, okay, okay, you're right, I give up, I agree, dead men don't bleed. Immediately, the good doctor took out a needle and poked his patient in the arm and blood spurted forth. And the patient looked at that and said, oh my goodness, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. (laughs) For centuries, people have looked at the Bible as a dead book. It's irrelevant. They marginalize it. It's out of date. It doesn't have anything to do with real life. It's allegorical. It's certainly not literal. It is dead. Today we're going to poke the Bible and watch it bleed truth. In fact, we'll be doing that over the next several weeks in the second part of the book of Daniel. Because we get to a very special part of the book of Daniel that lends itself to this kind of analytical study. So far in the book of Daniel, it's been pretty easy to go through in terms of application. It's all about stories. It's all narrative. Stories of three Hebrew children not bowing down before a statue. Stories of how these three and four, Daniel himself, purposed in their heart not to compromise but to stay steadfast and loyal to God. A story about the great feast of Belshazzar. And story of the lion's den. Daniel fared fine in the lion's den, but when you put Daniel in the critic's den, it gets different. The best way to look at the book of Daniel, because chapter 7 is a completely different section from chapter 6. It doesn't even read the same. Chapter 6 ends the chronological, historical part of Daniel. Now we get to the apocalyptic part, the prophetic part. So the best way to view Daniel is to slice it in two and say that the first six chapters are mostly historical with a little bit of prediction. But the last six chapters are mostly prediction with a little bit of history. So this is going to be a very different Bible study today. I just want to warn you that it's going to be a mix of history, prophecy, and a Twilight Zone episode. I mean, it's just a strange kind of a thing to read as we go through this chapter. But I... I'm going to encourage you, in fact, dare you to go deeper in your faith, to be smarter, well-read Christians who can stand up for what you believe. That you'll go deeper that when you have a conversation with somebody and they say, well, why do you believe that? You don't just say, well, I have my faith and you have your faith. That you can go a little bit better than that. In fact, we're encouraged to do that in the New Testament. Peter writes these words. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. That is the dare to understand the truths we're going to read, 
to not only know what you believe, but why you believe what you believe and to dare to put up a defense for the faith, to give a reason when people ask you why you believe it. There's a great story I've always loved about Carl Henry. Carl Henry's now in heaven. He was an eminent theologian and an author. And when he was a student, he was on a university campus with a group outside. He was giving his testimony to them about why he believed in Christ. And at the edge of the crowd was the skeptic who interrupted Henry and said, "Uh, let me just ask you a simple question. Do you believe in the book you're holding, that Bible? Do you believe all those stories? You mean to tell me you believe there really was a universal flood? You believe the story of Jonah and the whale? You believe the creation epic? You believe all that stuff? Henry said, yes, sir, I believe all of it. So the man went on to disrupt him and to sort of put him in a corner and say, well, let me ask you a question then. How could a guy like Jonah survive in the gullet of a great fish or a whale, as this book says, with the gastric juices emanating, with oxygen deprivation as part of the problem, with all the gases from the alimentary canal, how on earth could he survive? Young Carl Henry said, Sir, I do not know the answer to all your questions, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. The skeptic said, Yeah, but what if Jonah isn't in heaven? And Henry said, Well, then you can ask him. <laughs> and wow, that's a cute little story. I hope we can do better than just that. So today we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7, and because it is such an all-encompassing panoramic portrait of the future. We're going to look at it just skimming it today, looking at a few verses, but then going over it in the next few weeks. Beginning in verse 1, we see that Daniel documented the future. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, the second, like a bear, It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast dreadful, And terrible, exceedingly strong, it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns. And there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. 
its wheels like a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Basically, what we have here is Daniel saw things. Daniel wrote down what he saw. And what Daniel saw and wrote down happened as time went on. Now, I want you to notice that we have a historical setting in this chapter. As in all the other chapters of Daniel, proper names are given. Belshazzar, in this case, the ruler. We know where Daniel was in Babylon. We know about how long he was there. We certainly know how long the children of Israel were there before they were sent back to their land. So we have all of this detail that is added. But we have a problem. Beginning in chapter 7, all the way to the end of the book, we have an incredible problem. The problem is simply this. Because there are so many detailed predictions of the future that have actually come true. It has raised the interest and the skepticism of the critic. Example, in Daniel chapter 11, there are 35 verses that have 135 fulfilled and documented that they are fulfilled prophecies. 135 predictions of the future in 35 verses, all of which have happened. That has raised the interest of the critic. Now you're going to uh, help me here. I don't see how this is a problem. Well, let me illustrate the problem. Dr. A. Casey Morrison had a great illustration from the New York Academy of Sciences. He said, suppose I had in my pocket 10 pennies and I marked them one through 10. And then with hands out of pocket, I made a prediction to you. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to awe you right now. And I'm going to reach into my pocket and pull out penny pre-marked number one. If I were to pull my hand, pull out penny number one and show it to you, what would the chances of me doing that be? One in ten. There's only ten pennies. But if I said, now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to reach into my pocket and select with my fingers penny marked number two, my odds exponentially decrease to one in a hundred. If I could pull out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all in that sequence, my odds are one in a hundred billion. Now, let's just say I did that and I awed you all. You might clap and be awed, but a good majority of you would say, something's up. Something is going on. The game is fixed. There's no way that could happen naturally. That is the problem that we have. Because when the unbelieving skeptic approaches the Bible, he approaches the Bible with two predispositions. 
Predisposition number one, that we live in a closed system and the miraculous is impossible. Predisposition number two, is that because premise number one is true, and yet the things that are written about in Daniel really happened, then it must have been written after the fact, not before the fact. It's really not prophecy, it's history that somebody wrote after these things were fulfilled. That's how they approach this. Now, we who are Christians, we have no problem at all with prophecy. When we read about it, we go, hoorah! It's just simply another evidence of God's incredible power. God orchestrates history. God is all-knowing. And for the Lord, God, to predict with great detail an event is no more difficult than you waking up in the morning and saying, it's going to rain somewhere in the world. Duh! It's like a broken clock. It's always right twice a day. But when God gives these kind of meticulous, intricate prophecies, the unbeliever has a problem because of these predispositions. There must be, they say, some natural explanation because there is no supernatural. It has to be a natural explanation. It's like the nine-year-old boy who went to Sunday school and afterwards his mom said, what did you learn in Sunday school? What did your teacher tell you? And so the boy said, well, what happened was the children of Israel were in a fix with the Egyptians. So Moses was sent behind enemy lines to rescue them. And so what Moses did is had his engineers build this huge pontoon bridge over the Red Sea so the children of Israel could get safely from one part to the other. And then he got on his walkie-talkie and he radioed in for extra support and the bombers came in and bombed the pontoon bridge now the egyptians were on top of and they all drowned in the red sea and his mother looked at him and said you mean to tell me that's what your sunday school teacher taught you today he said no mom but if i were to tell you the way she told it to us you'd never believe it (laughs) and that's what the skeptic does that's what the critic does you can't believe anything supernatural it just doesn't happen So we got to make stuff up. It wasn't really the Red Sea. It's the Reed Sea, they say. It's only 18 inches of water that the children of Israel waded through. Okay, now explain to me how the Egyptian army drowned in that. It really wasn't manna that fell down from heaven. It's just a sap that appears in desert bushes common in the Sinai Peninsula. The resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't really happen because we know that stuff doesn't happen. So there must have been hallucinations the disciples had in their ecstatic, sleepless state. Or Jesus didn't die at all. He just swooned. He almost died, but didn't die. Or Daniel didn't write this book, but somebody else wrote it after the fact. And that's what many skeptics believe because of the amazing predictions that are in it. I'll give you a little bit of history. This first started surfacing about the third century AD by a guy by the name of Porphyry who was a Neoplatonic philosopher. He was a pagan. He wrote 15 books called Against the Christians. Can you imagine his life's work? 15 volumes called Against the Christians. He hated Christians, wanted to destroy the teachings of Christianity, and he wanted to defend polytheism. So Porphyry said that 
Daniel, the one that we say wrote the book of Daniel, didn't really write the book of Daniel. That there was some unknown Jew further on down the road, about 165 BC in the Maccabean period between the Old and the New Testaments. He was a Judean. He wrote after all of these things that Daniel predicted actually happened. About 400 years after it happened, he wrote it down and it was a forgery and he made it look like prophecy. So it's not in the 6th century BC, it was 165 BC that some unknown Jew, some unknown Maccabean Jew decided to write the book of Daniel. Now you might ask, well, so what's the big deal? Why are we spending a Sunday service on this? I'll tell you why it's important. If Daniel the prophet This book of Daniel is a forgery. The whole credibility of Jesus Christ goes down the tubes. You know why? Because Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation as spoken by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, you who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He didn't say, when you see the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the deceiver or Daniel the forger, he called Daniel a prophet. If Daniel wasn't a prophet, if this wasn't written when it was written, but later, the credibility of Jesus is shot. Not only that, but the entire New Testament, the documents of Peter and Paul and John, who wrote end times apocalyptic literature, though they had fresh revelation, a lot of what they wrote about is based squarely on the book of Daniel, the writings of the book of Daniel in these next few chapters. I want to sum it up by telling you what somebody else actually said. I'll quote him. Sir Isaac Newton. We've all heard that name, right? Sir Isaac Newton. The guy who, I was going to say, discovered gravity. He didn't. He observed gravity. And he wrote about it. But did you know that Isaac Newton wrote more about Christian apologetics than he wrote about science? And Sir Isaac Newton said this, Whoever rejects the prophecies of the book of Daniel does as much as if he undermined the Christian religion. In other words, if if this is fake, if this isn't true, if we can poke it and it doesn't bleed truth, then what are we doing here? Why are we getting up, dressing up and coming to church and singing to a God that doesn't exist and believing and reading a book that can't be trusted? So Daniel documented the future. I want you to see now that Daniel is defended by the facts. Go and look at the first couple verses with me, if you will. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, notice how detailed he is about telling you when and whom. Daniel had a dream, visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night. So evidently he went to bed and his dream turned into a vision. What a vision it was. Behold, four winds of heaven. That's an ancient term to speak about the four corners, north, south, east, and west, the four directions, all blowing, converging into one section. The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, the great sea is probably the Mediterranean Sea. They often called, um, they lived in the Mediterranean world. The Mediterranean was called the great sea. By the way, in the Bible, there are only four seas that are mentioned. Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, and the Great Sea. 
So in Daniel's vision, he's transported back home to where he grew up, Judea, and off of the coast of Israel, that great Mediterranean Sea, he sees in this vision as all stirred up. So once again, names, places are given in these writings. Now, what Daniel saw, he wrote. And what Daniel saw and wrote, we believe he wrote the 6th century B.C., not later. And I believe that Daniel is defended by the facts. First of all, the fact of archaeology. I told you a few weeks ago that for centuries, critics said, Aha! The book of Daniel is fake. You can't trust it. Because it mentions this guy named Belshazzar, who never existed in any of the records of history. And we've never found him in any of the archaeological digs. So book after book, year after year, was written that you can't trust the Bible because Belshazzar is in it. And he never existed until 1854 when an archaeologist in southern Iraq dug up a clay cylinder with cuneiform writing around it. And among other things was written a prayer for the good health and the long life of King Nabonidus of Babylon and his son Belshazzar. And the critics were immediately silenced. And we discovered later on, as we kept digging, that not only was he the son of Nabonidus, but he became the co-regent, the co-king of Babylon for his father. But we also know something else, that though there was a Belshazzar and he did reign, just like Daniel recorded it, that that's a recent discovery, 1854. And we know that the name of Belshazzar disappeared early from history. So that when another historian visiting Babylon a couple hundred years after it fell, named Herodotus, who was Greek, and he wrote about the glories that he still saw, and he named the kings and the queens of history, he left out Belshazzar, even though we know from archaeology that he existed. So here's my question. How could a Jew, writing in 165 B.C., write about what historians at his time didn't know about? Belshazzar. And that was buried in history till more recent discoveries in the 1800s. So archaeology defends Daniel as writing it. A second line of factual evidence is from paleography. Now, I didn't write that down because I'm smart or anything. I was looking for a word to rhyme with archaeology. And paleography is simply the study of old documents. It's manuscript evidence. And as you study manuscript evidence, it points to an early writing, not a later writing. Let me give you one of those pieces of evidence. You've heard of the Septuagint version of the Bible, right? Most of you have. The Septuagint version of the Bible is the most famous translation of the Old Testament. Translated from Hebrew into Greek around 275 B.C. by scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. 275 B.C. is 110 years earlier than the supposed forger who came along and wrote the book of Daniel was written. And as we look at the Septuagint version of the Bible, written before that, you know what's in it? The book of Daniel. 110 years before the forger came along and wrote the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel was written. At least that. Then there's the Dead Sea Scrolls, probably the 
greatest modern time archaeological discovery. In the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the cave of Qumran, a lot of you have visited that when we've gone to Israel. In cave number one, in cave number four of Wadi Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, fragments were found of the book of Daniel in Hebrew and in Aramaic. But get this, the Aramaic it was written in was not the more modern Maccabean between the Testament Aramaic, but 6th century B.C. style Aramaic, the kind that Daniel would have known and spoken. So archaeology, paleography. And then there's history. Here's Daniel seeing this vision, writing it down, and writing several visions down in the rest of the book. And these are things that he sees and says are going to happen. Now that was thousands of years ago. It's given us enough time to see if they actually happen. If you say something's going to happen and it never happens, you're a false prophet. If you say something's going to happen and you let history take its course and they actually happen, I hope you go, huh. Things that make you go, huh. That would be one of them. History proves it. Daniel predicts four mighty nations will come. And three of those are mentioned by name in the book of Daniel. The kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Medo-Persia, and the kingdom of Greece. So if you say, well, you know, the supernatural never happens, and the book of Daniel was written after the fact, this is really a forgery, this is really a fake, you have to call archaeology a liar, textual criticism and evidence a liar, historians a liar, and Christ a liar. The evidence is against the critic and against the skeptic. We poke the Bible, it bleeds truth. I've always loved this statement by NASA scientist Robert Jastrow. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. He pulls himself over the final rock and he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. We've discovered something archaeological. This must mean this, and the Bible is correct. Okay, okay, we'll, give, we'll say to that. And then they crawl all the way up, and there's a bunch of theologians saying, Hi, told you so. Then there is prophecy. Prophecy is one of the facts that defends the accuracy of the Bible. In fact, I would say that of all the other things, prophecy is the verification that God gave us this book, this book of Daniel, more than anything else. What the Bible says will come to pass does come to pass because there's an all-knowing and all-powerful God. There are hundreds of examples. Here's one. God told Abraham in advance, your descendants will be in a foreign land for 400 years. That's exactly what happened. They were bondage in Egypt, 400 years. God told the prophets of the Babylonian captivity before Babylon ever existed as a world power and that the kingdom would last 70 years, the captivity. God told Isaiah the prophet that Babylon would be overthrown by King Cyrus. And it was written in the prophecy of Isaiah, get this, 200 years before Cyrus was ever born. His name was written in the scripture. That's because of this fact, Isaiah 46, God speaking, I am God and there is no one else, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. 
Only God at the beginning can declare the end. And that's what you find in Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Daniel 7 is the most comprehensive panoramic of all the prophecies in the entire Old Testament and probably in all of the Scripture. It is incredible. So incredible that chapter 8, 9, 10, the rest of the chapters will all go back and fit somewhere in chapter 7 and just simply highlight and amplify what we read here. So Daniel is documented by the future. Daniel is defended by the facts. Let's read a little bit and see how Daniel described what follows. Now, we've already read through several verses, but let's just go back and visit a few, especially this vision of these four wild animals. These four wild animals are four kingdoms that will arise. I didn't make that up. We didn't read it. But if you keep reading in verse 15, 16, and 17, there's an interpreter there who tells Daniel, Oh, by the way, Daniel, what you saw, those four beasts are four kingdoms that will arise out of the earth. Now, let me just get something in your mind before we even go through these. The dream that Daniel gets corresponds to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had many years before. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a huge statue. Remember that? Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, stomach and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. Ten toes. The dream Daniel has is of wild beasts. Same truths, two different images. The question is, why? I believe because Nebuchadnezzar, as a pagan king, saw it from the worldly perspective. Daniel saw it from God's perspective. The world is enamored with power, enamored with kingdoms, enamored with glory. And he sees this big statue, gold, silver, bronze. But when God looks at the world, he sees the world as ravenous beasts, bloody fighting, destroying one another to have power. And that's an accurate depiction. I think we could, all of us could look at any point and survey history and even survey what's going on in the world and we still see it happening. There's no peace, but there's destruction and there's war. Like a sea being churned up kingdom after kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar sees from the human perspective, God looks at it from heaven's perspective and gives that to Daniel. Reminds me of the scripture when the prophet Samuel was trying to find the next king of Israel and he went to the house of Jesse. And before he found David, he saw David's older brother Eliab who looked, you know, tall, dark, and handsome. And he said, this dude is the king. And God said, "Uh, nope, I have rejected him. For God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Daniel chapter 7 shows you how God sees the heart of these kingdoms. Verse 4 is the first. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its power, till its wings, excuse me, were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. Now this corresponds to the head of gold. You, O king, said Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Want to hear something fascinating? In the archaeological discoveries of the city of Babylon, especially at the gates of the royal palaces, they have found several examples 
of winged lions. That was the depiction of Babylon by the Babylonians. A winged lion. Lion, the king of the beasts. Eagle, the king of the birds. It speaks of power, domination, speed. All of which characterized Nebuchadnezzar when he took Karshemish, 605 B.C., defeated the Egyptians, took over the whole world speedily. They cast a lion with the wings. That depicted Babylon. Just like Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, You, O king, are the head of gold. Notice it says, though, that the wings were plucked off. That would indicate a loss of power and a loss of speed. And I believe that this actually took place, as most scholars believe, that this describes Nebuchadnezzar being humbled by God. And he was given a new heart, a different heart, after that episode that we already discussed. Verse 5 is the next kingdom, the second kingdom, like a lopsided bear. This speaks of the Medo-Persian Empire, the chest and arms of silver. I'll show you why. Suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. Now a bear is slower than a lion. It's more lumbering than a lion. Not as agile as a lion. But a bear has brute force, brute strength. I have a friend who lives in Alaska. And he lives where bears come out. And I mean, he, they, come, they come over for Halloween trick-or-treating. There are so many bears there. Um, that's a little exaggeration. But he was at home and he was outside and a bear was coming toward him. He's up on his porch. So he pulled out his bear gun, whatever that is, some big gun. And he shot the bear coming at him. The bullet struck the bear in the chest. The bear kept coming at him. He shot it again. The bear kept coming at him. Now he's on the porch. He fired a third shot at the bear. The bear kept coming until it finally collapsed right in front of him where he was standing. Hard to stop a bear. Brute force. And that is a great depiction of the Medo-Persian Empire. For example, in the battle when King Xerxes of Persia fought the Greeks, Xerxes was able to amass an enormous army of 2,500,000 troops. They moved slowly, but with great power and great force. Notice also in this verse that says the bears raised up on one side, as if two feet are on the ground and two feet are up. It's lopsided. That also is a depiction of the Medo-Persian coalition. It was never an even union. The Persians were much more powerful than the Medes were. And historians bear that out. Verse 6 is the third beast, a four-headed leopard-looking thing. After this, I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. Now, a leopard would be the most agile so far of any of the animals, and given four wings, it would be incredibly fast. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This is a perfect depiction of the next empire, which will also be named as we go on in this book, the kingdom of Greece. When Alexander the Great took over the world, beginning in 334 BC, there are two things that marked his kingdom. Speed of victory, speed of victory, and the speed of the breakup of his kingdom. 
First of all, he took over the world from Greeks, Macedonia, all the way to Egypt, all the way to India in 10 years. 10 years. It's so fast that it surprised even him. But then there was a speed of breakup. He was 31 years old when he died. He died in Babylon. And when he was dying on his deathbed, the people surrounding him said, What shall we do with the kingdom? To whom shall the kingdom go? And he said, Give it to the strong. And the kingdom was divided up between the generals of Alexander. Guess how many there were? There were four generals, like the four heads. Four generals. Now, how could Daniel have known that? That's why the critics said he couldn't have. It was written after the fact. Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy were the four generals, and the kingdom was divided up as the Scripture predicted. The seventh, and we'll touch more on this in the weeks to come, is this iron-toothed beast. It is unlike any other beast so far. Verse 7, After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast. doesn't even say what it's like. Just a fourth beast. Notice the description. Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, hmm, like the iron legs, right, of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. The main feature is its iron teeth. Historically, we know this to be the iron rule of Rome. Like the legs in the statue, the longest part of the anatomy, Rome ruled the longest. Not 200 years like most of these others, but 1,500 years in total. Also, you should just write a footnote either to yourself if you have a perfect memory or write it down so you don't forget. Revelation 13. This corresponds to Revelation 13 where John sees a beast coming out of the sea and describes it with the features of a leopard, a bear, and a lion. has all of the features and then some to make it very, very unique unlike any other creature. So, through prophecy, God authenticates himself and confirms the validity of his word. Which brings me to a question, and it does every time I study archaeology and prophecy and textual criticism, etc. Why do the critics persist? Why do they keep trying to attack the Bible? Aha, we found something. Yeah, but have you consulted the other 400 critics before you that found something and then had to zip their lip? Ah, but we found something. Why do they persist? I mean, all of this evidence is here. It's discoverable. You can find it. You can research it. It's easy. I have a hunch. It's like the guy who was so enamored with the microscope when he was showed it one day and he looked in and he saw the intricacies and beauty of flowers and nature. He had to have one for himself. So he bought one and he took it home and he showed his family and he took some of the evening meal in a slide and looked at it under the microscope and was disgusted to find microscopic things crawling all over it, like most everything has. And it so appalled him, it so disturbed him, that was his favorite food he was looking at. You know what he did? He smashed the microscope. What do you do with the evidence? You get rid of the instruments that tells you the truth. I have a hunch that people want to destroy the Bible so much, not because it reveals the future, but because it reveals their heart. 
It tells us that all men and women are sinners by nature and by choice and need a savior. And that the only solution is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross. And that is a truth they do not want to see under the microscope. So let's just destroy that microscope, shall we? You poke the Bible and it bleeds truth. And if God can be that detailed about the future, don't you think he can handle your tomorrow? Father, that's where we leave it. So much more could be said, and certainly there's more in my heart to say. I'm just overwhelmed by this stuff every time I look at it, every time I read it. But just when people think the Bible is dead, it keeps bleeding more truth. And we who are believers are not amazed by it, but we certainly rejoice in it. And we're so thankful that we have a book that comes from the very mind of God, And in reading the Bible, it couldn't be better than if you were here audibly speaking your voice to us. It is the very words of God. And we thank you for it, and we rest in it, and we trust you with our lives because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.